Welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and home to stories about birds. Supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. My name's Hamza Yassin and uh, I'm a wildlife cameraman living in the west coast of Scotland. I came here 10 years ago on a holiday and two weeks later I was back here for good. I'm super lucky to be living in a place that as soon as I open my curtains in the morning I can see white-tailed eagle, golden eagle, curlew, windchat, ring plover, red shank, I, you name it and I've probably got it here and all through a space of a window. Granted my window is quite big looking out towards the sea but because there's such a variety of habitats within that window, within that view, I can cover a lot of birds and having the ability to see all those birds just fills me with joy. It's an absolute joy to see their life, how they live throughout the seasons, throughout the different weathers, how they've coped, how they didn't cope. So I normally get uh, a few mallards that nest in the reeds in front of the house and they'll start off with 10 chicks and the next day I'll turn up and I'll do another count and there's nine of them. And then the next day I turn up and there's eight and, you know, there's a whole drama about it. And a week later I come back and there's still eight and I'm kind of jumping for joy. I'm like, woohoo, there's going to be eight of them who are going to make it this year but by the end of the summer realistically there's probably about only two or three left and that is exactly the reason why they have 10 to 12 chicks each time in a clutch because these chicks become chicken nuggets really for larger birds of prey otters mink all that kind of stuff so evolution is an amazing thing and the Ability to watch it and see it happen in front of your house is just wonderful. This week's episode will be focusing on birding in built-up environments. That's because a lot of the people in the UK live in cities or nearby a city. And it would be unrealistic if we talked about birding in the countryside the whole time. And birding in urban areas is very, very important and brings its own challenges. So I wanted to speak to a few people that are experts in the field of birding in urban areas. Now, I'm very lucky to be living here in the west coast of Scotland, surrounded by these birds. But birds can be found anywhere in the world, in every environment, even in towns, cities, the hustle and bustle. And when it comes to hustle and bustle, there's no place like New York. That's the first place that comes to mind. There was one man that I had to speak to, Gabriel Willow. And I caught up with him on his mobile phone just after finishing one of his famous nature tours. There's a bunch of students going by. There are a lot of helicopters. And here comes a truck. I'm on an island in New York Harbor, and I do apologize for the noise. It's called Governor's Island, and I'm looking out at the Statue of Liberty right now. Uh, I'm across 
across New York Harbor from the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island where all of the uh, immigrants in the uh, late 19th and earlier 20th century arrived to the city. I call myself an urban naturalist um, because I'm just interested in, I studied human ecology, that's what my degree is in, and I'm really interested in ecosystems in the most altered landscapes, and so human altered, I should say. So somewhere like New York City, where it's incredibly dense, you've got, you know, every aspect of the landscape has been changed in some way by humans, which increasingly is something you could say for the whole planet, especially with climate change. You really can't claim at this point that anywhere is untouched by by human activity or, um, you know, even the most remote regions uh, on the planet. But I'm interested in really diving into these areas that are heavily altered and then finding ways that nature adapts and survives and thrives. And, and, and not just birds. I mean, I love, I love birds. I'm definitely a, a birder, but also here, I'm really fascinated that, you know, coyotes have recolonized New York City within the last decade or so. And even in Central Park, there's been a resident coyote who might have pups. And, and so all these aspects of wildlife in the city adapting. And to me, that's inspiring. Like if they can, well, it's like that adage about New York City. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Do you think, like, because you say if you can make it in New York City, you can make it anywhere, do you think that makes city birding easier for people? Yeah, I think that's the irony. You know, when I tell people that I'm a a wildlife enthusiast and guide, and then often they're like, why the heck are you in New York then? Like, isn't it just rats and pigeons, you know? And often people find that a little surprising. But in fact, quite the opposite, you know, in urban spaces, birds and, and other wildlife, particularly migratory birds, though, tend to be concentrated in the available green space because there's less of it. So city parks and even yards and smaller green spaces tend to have a really high concentration of birds. I actually grew up in a rural area up in up in the state of Maine on a farm, more or less. And I see way more birds here in New York. And there it was like, you know, almost like very rural, almost wilderness. And, you know, there were bears and moose and, and loons and things like that. But you just didn't see them that often because there were so many places for them to hide. Plus, many uh, cities, New York City included, are built where they are because it was a rich ecosystem. So New York is on this great estuary where the Hudson uh, and the East River, which is actually a tidal strait, uh, meet and meet the harbor. And then you've got this series of islands. It's an archipelago. And, you know, London as well. And often these areas are very rich in wildlife. And, and here also we're on the Atlantic Flyway, which is a major migratory flyway. So I think this always would have been a pretty bird-rich area. Combine that with the lack of, the lack of relative lack of available habitat, and, and the birds are highly concentrated, which, is, uh, which makes for actually really exciting birding opportunities. Where's one of your favorite spots to do some birding? Well, right here uh, on Governor's Island is absolutely one of my favorites. I mean, just because the views are so spectacular. You've got the Statue of Liberty right there. You've got mm-hmm. Lower Manhattan. And when you're looking at Manhattan from this island, which is between uh, New Jersey, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Staten Island, so it's very centrally located. Now there's a phalanx of about, uh, let me see here, two, four, two, about 15 jet skis going by in the harbor or something here. Um, it's, it's a bit of a migrant trap because it's right in the harbor. And so you can really find all kinds of things here, including vagrants from out west. I've had western kingbird here, which are usually west of the Great Plains. Uh, someone saw a dick thistle here the other day, which is also a, generally a prairie bird. And then, yeah. of course, cent- Central Park. I'm leading a tour in Central Park in a couple of hours, and that's quite iconic. You know, you're in Central Park, and 
and uh, there's just lots of birders there too so it's nice to see other bird watchers and compare notes came to the UK when I was eight and I moved from Sudan, a country in North Africa that is a beautiful and amazing and desolate place in itself but different to the UK in so many ways but similar as well. And recently in the past 10 years Sudan was split into two countries, North Sudan and South Sudan and North Sudan is where I'm from. I'm from a, a town called Khartoum, which is the capital. My house was situated right on the banks of the Nile. So I was super lucky to be growing up with the plethora of birds that were there. And we knew them for their African names, um, like Wadda Dabrak or Tayra Jannah, which translation is birds from heaven. And these were the weaver birds. They're very colourful and bright and make a lot of noise. And I didn't know that these birds were special. These were our common birds that we had in the Nile. But when I came to the UK, I realised that I lived in an absolutely amazing place at the time. And I missed it a little bit. But the UK had a lot to offer for me, and especially the west coast of Scotland. It was lush, green, vibrant, completely different to Sudan and Africa. Coming here, I remember it was middle of winter and I was shocked at how cold it was. But slowly over time, I grew to loving the cold environments. Working around the world in Antarctica and places like that just cemented to me that I am a cold-blooded animal and I really love the cold compared to the rest of my family who love the heat and the warmth and I think they miss it from their days back in Africa. Are you what we would call here in the UK a twitcher? Would you fly across the state to go and find something? Or are you kind of like, no, I'm staying at home and birding from my local patch? I mean, I get it. It's thrilling to see a new bird. But to me, it's more exciting to discover, you know, the unexpected. So if you're chasing a known bird, it's inherently not surprising. Like, you know, it's there. I used to be very, like, dogmatic about that. There was this South American gull, I think it was a silver-headed gull, on the beach at Coney Island, which is in Brooklyn, about half an hour from where I live. And at the time, I was a purist, and I would not go see it because it was chasing a thing. And I, I'm like, that's it. for me, it wasn't about chasing the rarities, and it was just about being outside and experiencing the, the phenomenon of migration and seeing what I find myself. I regret that because I'm like, well, that bird was right there. Half hour train ride from my house. I totally could have gone out and seen it. And, and I wish I had. Now, I, if I hear about something within the city, I might hop on my bike or on the subway and go find it. But usually within a 
reasonable radius. You see, I'm always interested to, to know what your reasonable radius is. For example, would you pull a sickie and leave work, call the boss in and say, look, I'm ill, I've got something's wrong, I'm going to see a bird, or would you classify that as too much? Well, I'm very lucky. I, I birdwatch for a living. So yes, I, I would not. I may I may shift some plants around, though, if I had a, you know, I, I do have the occasional meeting or something, and, and yeah, maybe. Um, I admire people who do that, though. If you have a desk job, and and it's boring <laughs> more power to you you should get outside birding people should call in sick to go birding as often as possible that's my that's my position i respect that like absolutely get outside and and enjoy it because i think it is i think it's good for people's mental health and they need that you're yeah. one of the only few people that i know that carries two pairs of binoculars it's because in my line of work i want to um have a spare in case in case a on one of my walks needs a pair there's always someone who is coming from work and, and didn't have binoculars or maybe doesn't own binoculars at all i carry a couple extra um just to be able to hand them out to folks because here in the uk what you tend to find from a hardcore birder they'll have a pair of binoculars on their neck and a telescope on their sure. back yes and is that is that kind of what you guys do in the u.s as well sure absolutely uh, a spotting scope is very useful uh, i find spotting scope is something you tend to use for waterfowl or shorebirds where you're looking over quite long distances usually at larger birds that don't move as much you wouldn't use a spotting scope typically on a songbird something like a warbler or a wren or something that's moving around in foliage so i wouldn't bring a spotting scope to central park the jamaica bay wildlife refuge uh in queens which is a, a, a in brooklyn which is a major new york birding hotspot unassuming looking marsh and bit of scrubby woodland but it has mm. over 350 species of birds recorded. And there there's there there's marshland and mudflats and a scope is somewhat essential if you want to identify distant uh, shorebirds or, or as, as you call them in the UK, uh, waders. Now, it's funny you are like, um, you know the UK uh, terminology as well as the US version. One of the things we in the UK, we call it ringing. And when yes. we put the rings on the little bird's legs, you guys yes. say banding. Is that right? That's yeah. Right. Now, how how do you feel that? Basically, I feel that the UK is the hardcore, you know, centuries old birding um, yeah. tradition. Whereas, if someone tells me the US, I kind of go, oh, they, they must be like only 70, 80 years ago, maybe a maximum 100. Do you feel that? Do you feel when the Brits come over to America that there's that feeling or vice versa? Well, I find that British birders are very, very good at birders. I mean, they're really, uh, well, England has more birders per capita than any other country, I think, or the UK um, overall, perhaps. So I think followed by maybe the Netherlands, followed by the US. And so in, it's just it's just a big community in England, the UK, excuse me. And, and it seems just like a, a, a much more widespread hobby there, although it is rapidly increasing in popularity in the US. And I think there is a distinct style. I mean, one thing, in, in American birders tend to practice pishing, which is that you make some weird, funny sounds that attracts the birds. Exactly. They don't do oh. that in, in, in Europe or the UK very much, as far as I know. Yeah. But here, if, if you make that noise, that it'll draw birds out of the bushes or out of hiding and, and make them more visible. Right. It, it seems like European birds literally don't respond to that, that sound, and I don't know why. But I, I was, I was in birding in Europe uh, a few months ago, and and um, and doing that, and and yeah, that some folks walked up to the to the hide where I was, or bird blind, as we say in the U.S., 
there's different cultures certainly um but british burners are among the best generally the best i think in the world like not only the most of them but just really attuned to nuance and like the bird's shape there's a holistic sensibility that i appreciate they tend to focus a lot on behavior shape movement i think here the peterson field guide was such a huge influence i mean he came out with that in uh about 1927 so we are coming up on 100 years 95 years or so and that was so influential here and it was yeah. the idea of field marks with little arrows pointing at field marks and it was very beneficial because it brought a lot of people into birding and made it accessible prior mm. to that you had these big handbooks that would break down the bird from a the point of view of someone who was still shooting them basically and and so a couple things happened you know we ha there was um world war one which brought about relative relatively cheaper optics so a lot of uh binoculars were made during world war one and two and then a lot of of soldiers and such would come back with these or folks from the navy with these binoculars and then as i mentioned you know they'd hand them down to their kids or grandkids so you had a shift from from people sh like more uh, uh amateur naturalists who were t making specimens you know maybe taxidermying birds and shooting them and describing them to, to, yeah. to looking at them in the field with binoculars and so the older books tended to describe them in great detail the sort of way you would see them if it was a specimen in your hand and so mm -hmm. peterson's revelation was was he actually was in the military during world war ii i think in in i'm not sure which branch but he was looking at planes he either made or used a little handbook a little guide to identify mm -hmm. planes so you'd shoot down enemy planes not not your own um mm -hmm. or allies because it was a confusing war you had all these different allies and their planes looked different so there was a little uh, handout or some kind of one page or something they would have that had schematics of the planes and so that's actually where he got the idea but the downside is i think of, of how influential that was here is it led people to have a very schematic viewpoint and look for these little field marks. And if they, you know, don't see, oh, there's the little fiddly, you know, the eye ring and the wing bar and the malar stripe, well, gosh, then I don't know what it is. You can take a more holistic viewpoint and, well, what's the bird's behavior? And because yes. Peterson showed every bird in the exact same posture, at least within a family, so each warbler is posed in the exact same way. But that's mm -hmm. not how they are. I mean, mm. oven birds walk on the ground and, and red, red starts flare their tails they make them seem more similar than they really do in real life. And and UK birders, because you're from an entirely different tradition with different guides uh, and handbooks and, and, and culture, tend to be a bit more holistic in their identification uh, techniques. So I think American birders are getting there. So my parents live in Northamptonshire and there is a brewery there, uh, Carlsberg Brewery. And on the Carlsberg Brewery sign, you often see peregrine falcons sitting on there. And for me, that is such a weird thing to be looking at. It's a bright neon green sign. And one day I was just walking past and I hear the, the peeping of the peregrine. And I'm kind of going, I can hear a peregrine right in the middle of the city centre. And I saw it head out towards Carlsberg and I didn't really take much notice of it. But the beauty about the factory there, it's got two long towers that consequently share the sign Carlsberg on there, the bright green neon sign. And one day I'm coming across walking past Carlsberg again and I hear the peeping of the peregrine. And I look up and I see it landing on the sign and I'm like oh my god this is amazing 
So I went back home, picked up my binoculars and scope, and I came back to look at the sign. And to my surprise, it wasn't just one, it was two. And it was a pair of peregrine falcons that used the sign, the neon sign, as a roost. They will sleep there for most of the evening and they'll actually hunt from there as well. I saw one amazing hunt where it flew off from the sign, hunted a pigeon and came back. And that all happened above the city centre, right in the middle of Northampton. Since we've started to build skyscrapers in cities, these buildings and the ledges and the balconies that we have for them have become artificial cliff edges and they've become perfect habitat because we have a lot of pigeons in the city and peregrines is one example of how they've used the city to their advantage. Humans and birds have been coexisting together for millennia, sometimes happily, sometimes not. Whether that's through falconry, where they have a symbiotic relationship for finding food, or whether that is hunting to feed ourselves, or whether that is watching them for our pleasure. Imagine a world that's been designed for both humans and birds to happily coexist. What would that be like? I wanted to speak to someone who knew exactly what that was like, to design a world for both humans and birds. My name is James Taylor Foster, and I'm the curator of contemporary architecture and design at Arkdes, which is Sweden's National Museum of Architecture and Design in Stockholm. What is a curator? A curator is someone who cares for things, who cares for ideas and people and context. And around all that, uh, I'm someone who is, I suppose, a kind of novel bird watcher. Over the last five years, I started to realize that birds are everywhere. Birds are fascinating. I mean, I think when I was a child, I used to realize that if you just sat very, very still and you sort of hid yourself in a, in a particular location, they, they come. But, you know, it's that sort of patience and that sort of need to look closely and listen closely that, that amazed me as a child and, and it's something that I'm rediscovering now. Arkdes is located in the very centre of Stockholm. Hrebsholmen, the, the location of the museum, is sometimes called the last island of the archipelago, it's sometimes called the first island of the archipelago, but it is an island with an incredible uh, natural habitat and in the very centre of this, the museum has a space called Exercise Plants, uh, an old car park, basically, drill site when it was a, a former military base. And as a museum, we're very interested in a few things. Number one, the value of architecture, the value of contemporary design, but also how these backgrounds to our lives shape public life, as we call it. Public life is a very ambiguous thing. It means something to one person and something else to another, but it's also a collective ideal about how we construct cities, about how we live together, and also how can we live together. We got in touch with Studio Asidiana, who are a Rotterdam-based architecture and research studio, and said to them, if you were to make a public space, a prototypical public space, what would you do? And their response was better than we could ever have hoped for. And in this summer, in 2021, they opened 
what could be described as a UFO, a kind of enormous circular island in itself, which landed in the very center of this island, made out of terrazzo and pigmented concrete in pinks and, and greens. And their underlying principle behind what a prototypical or experimental public space could be, and, and sort of by making it and thinking about what it could be through function, through activation, was about coexistence, coexistence between birds and humans. It's a circular world, uh, which is composed of a series of different elements. There is a, a shallow pool for paddling in or putting your feet in during a hot day, but also obviously predominantly for the birds to, to drink and wash. There is a, what we call a secret bird garden, which is uh, an enormous design structure with a miniature archipelagic island inside. And when it comes to flora and fauna, the kind of rocks, a place just for birds, for the kind of sparrows that you rarely see or the swallows that nest in the building nearby. There is a sundial, which is made of pigmented concrete that absorbs the heat of the sun and creates this kind of bathing space. There are bird perches designed specifically by Studio Sidiana that sort of reimagine what it means for a bird to sort of sit above or what it means for a human to sit below. And, and within this kind of world, of course, everything is, is orchestrated around the movements of, of the sun. Bringing in the, the cosmic elements helps us, I think, when we're in a kind of public space like this, which is somehow an installation, somehow an artwork, and somehow just something that should blend into the background. We start to understand that to become close with one another, to become close with, with the ecological life around us, and to become close with the movements of the sun, with the cosmos, is, is quite easy to do if you simply take the time to look. And over the course of the summer, you know, we've been through nesting season. We're now through that. We've, it's incredible to see how birds, particularly geese, uh, we also have a family of magpies, a couple of mallards that have lived on the island for many, for many years, have started to appropriate it to the point where it becomes a, a natural space for them. They can be timed on the, on the dot as to when they arrive here in, in their sort of squadrons to, to bathe and, and splash about. Design is this really fundamentally important tool to experiment with how we can construct the contexts for, for being together. And I think that what I've learned through Studio Sidiana's project in Stockholm is, uh, is a very simple thing. I see this island in a new way. I stand on this work and I look to the sky and I see birds that, are, that, that, of course, were always there, but now they're noticed. I see them swoop down and descend to this. Their curiosity brings them to this pool of water. And, and there have been many moments where, where uh, I've been sat there myself alone, early morning, for example, with um, a, family of, a family of geese and their, and their children, because part of Studio Sidiana's design was also about the ground, and, and part of the ground is made out of shells. And shells are you know, a crucial part of, of many birds' diets and quite difficult to, to find. So that was a massive attractor. Of course, when we think about the world through design, we start to see things more closely. And I think that, that, is the, that that's the fundamental advantage of putting some focus on this thing, because we may not have got it right this time, but we got much further than, than, uh, than we would have if we'd simply just allowed it all to remain in the background. With any sort of cultural project, you, 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 you make it, you put it out there, people come and people take 
um, what they want to take from it or what they can take from it at that moment. It's very difficult to quantify what a space like this, what impact or resonance a space like this can, can have. But at the very, very least, I think it may have helped for the visitors who have come by, for the people who have who have tangoed on there, for the people who have paddled in the pool, for the people who have just sat and had an ice cream. It's created an opportunity to look closely and to listen closely. And in, in many ways, that's enough. I've become, uh, I've become a, a, more of a birdwatcher since I moved to, to Sweden. Um, and this is, it was interesting for me to realize that, that Sweden and the UK have something very in common, which is an extremely strong birdwatching community. And I've started to realize that that is about geography. It's about the ground. It's about the, the, the fact that, you know, the UK is an island and, and Sweden has an enormous coastline and, and is composed of archipelagic spaces, but also something about the, the migratory birds that are coming to Europe. There's a massive amount of similarities. And for me, you know, learning Swedish has been extremely difficult uh, when it comes to bird names, because S Swedish is one of the few languages that has a name for every bird. And they're radically different from from uh, the, the names that I grew up with um, in, in the UK. When I mean, the Collins Bird Guide, which is, you know, one of the first books that I sort of was recommended to me as a as a as a as a bird spotter, I realized is has a very has a very important history in in Stockholm. The illustrations, the the writing, um, are made by are made by Swedes. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? As 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 nations, let's say, close their borders for whatever reason, whether it's a result of pandemic or politics, um, there's so much that transcends borders. And birds fascinate me because they are the ultimate transcenders of borders. The world is just a, a canvas to them. And, and the locations that they choose to be in uh, are places that we should cherish. Uh, I lead walks uh, twice a week in Bryant Park, which is this small park right behind the New York Public Library with the famous lion statues. I don't know if you've heard about those. And so it's a, a block from Times Square. It's very, you know, you couldn't be any more of an urban space. And I lead walks there twice a week. And, and you know, to date, we're, we're close to 140 species in this park. That's one by two city blocks. That's amazing. Yeah. And so to take people in this space where they don't anticipate seeing much and like, oh, there's an American red star, you know, hopping on the ground and it's got these beautiful colors or, oh, wow, there's a, a black-billed cuckoo up in the trees, this migrant or a peregrine falcon swoops in and chases the pigeons. For that to potentially shift their entire outlook on the world and for them to get engaged with conservation and concerned about the well-being of these birds and are their populations declining. And, you know, in New York City, a big challenge is that birds fly into reflective glass on buildings or bus stops or whatever. You know, there's volunteers who go out every day and look for injured birds and bring them to a, re a wildlife rehabilitator, a uh, place called the Wild Bird Fund. And so there's ways that people do end up actually getting directly involved with helping these birds. And less than a year ago, the New York City, ca the City Council passed a bill requiring non-reflective glass or glass with special UV patterns that birds can see first 75 feet of height of a building, which is where most collisions occur. So, so all this teaching people led to advocacy and engagement, which led to political, you know, change, which mm. led to laws being passed. And so, there's real concrete things we're seeing. Uh, no pun intended. A lot of concrete in the city, but. Um, <laughs> uh, that can actually positively impact 
birds and, and may save thousands or, or maybe even over time millions of lives of birds and, and and so that's that's inspiring yeah i was i was just about to say to you how does that make you feel it must be a good feeling yeah i mean i i spoke at the city council hearings that were held uh prior to this law being passed and i was one of many speakers a couple of the most passionate and inspiring speakers were a couple of school children who were maybe 10 years old and one of them had even volunteered to go out and, and collect either unfortunately dead birds or injured birds another had gotten his all his schoolmates to to sign a petition to city council mm-hmm. to get this law passed and so it was really great seeing the next generation too and and, and a lot of these kids are regulars on my walks because they're going to be putting me out of a job pretty soon to see them as engaged citizens engaging uh, doing advocacy work for conservation it's a good feeling A lot of us don't live in the countryside like I do, but we have access to gardens and we can do so much to attract small birds into these gardens. So I spoke to Adrian Thomas, who works at the RSBB, and he's an expert in gardening and gardening for birds especially. And he gave me a few tips to make the most out of your garden. Good morning, Adrian. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you, Hamza. It, the sun is shining. It's autumn, which is my favourite month, apart from spring, summer and winter. So, yeah, all is good. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do? What's your job? Because I know you work for the RSPB, but what is what is it exactly that you do? You're quite right. I have a day job with the RSPB, which has a job title that I refuse to go on a a name badge, which is project development manager, which means almost nothing whatsoever. And in reality, what does it mean? It means I get punted wherever there is some big project that needs doing it. It might be building a new visitor centre. It might be trying to save a threatened species. It might be setting up a new nature reserve. So it's beautifully varied. And I've been in the role, uh, I've been working with the RSPB for 21 years years now but it 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 melds incredibly beautifully with what i do in my spare time which is either birding or walking in the countryside for which birding inevitably goes along with that or being in in my garden i love the natural world i love our place in it as human beings i believe that we're part of the natural world and we shouldn't distance ourselves from it and talk about it as, as if it's something else somewhere else And I'm really passionate about the fact that we can have some of our most intense and moving and emotional experiences with nature straight outside our back doors. What's your garden like? What do you do to attract birds to your garden? I'm incredibly fortunate to have an acre of garden. And my prior garden to that was a postage stamp of garden. So I've seen both extremes. But I think what's extra special about the garden that I've got is that it is in a suburban environment. It is a piece of land that managed to withstand, thanks to the former owners, uh, a couple of uh, elderly sisters who, who just hung on to their acre of garden while the town sprang up around them. So it's like this oasis in the middle of, of a town. And I like to think that, that my garden is the seeding out of birds out into all the gardens around me. And I know that so many people stop by in the street because birdsong just rings out from, from my garden in the spring. 
a big part of what I've been doing in the garden in the last seven years has been all sorts of experimentation and doing things to try and improve it for wildlife and measuring those changes at the same time, actually treating it as a bit of a scientific experiment. So actually removing some trees to start with is a really weird thing in most people's minds um, of making something more wildlife friendly. But that brings back in the sunshine. You can increase the flora diversity, put in some ponds, obviously put in some feeders as, as well, and just try and make it as wildlife friendly as I possibly can. So it's funny you saying that you had to take some trees away. And me, who uh, I don't know as much about uh, like fully attracting birds like you do to your garden, explain to me a little bit about that and tell me if someone had a completely manicured lawn, what would be kind of like the best tree to plant to attract uh, birds? In terms of removing trees, once you got to the point where it's complete tree cover, which it was in the garden when I took it over. Effectively, the, the dams and trees that were in there had suckered everywhere. And so the ground underneath was totally bare, no plants growing whatsoever. And along one side was a line of Leylandii, which can be really good for birds. But we're talking 80 foot tall, um, dark wall of Leylandii. And what I wanted to do was remove some of those. I don't chuck them out in the garden. If if something comes down in my garden, I save it and I use the wood and I use the, the clippings that come from it. So nothing gets wasted. Then put in some replacement trees that are native species. Um, indeed, open up so that sunshine can get in. The, the ideal garden environment, I, I think, for wildlife is effectively a woodland glade. So you need that sunny space in the middle of it. And sunshine brings insects, brings new plants that you can grow down at ground level. So you're increasing the diversity within the garden, both of the plant life and then of all the wildlife that comes there. And I think it's a great starting point for people to think about their, their garden and go, well, how much is this like a woodland glade? Have I got the shelter and the height and the cover of the trees, but have I got the ground plants and the sunny spaces that your butterflies and your bees and your hoverflies are, are going to use? In ecological terms, it's, it's called edge effect. The richest places for wildlife are where you have one habitat moving into another. And in my garden, I have wetlands moving into grasslands, moving into flower beds, moving into shrubs, moving into trees. So I've got edge effects all over the place. And that's what makes it so rich for wildlife. In terms of what, what tree to put in your lawn, I always say there is a tree out there for every size of garden, no matter how small your garden might be. If you put in a tree that, that's going to totally dominate a small garden, then you're going to struggle to create that diversity within it. And where I normally point people to to start with, with a, with a tree, um, is into fruit trees, because with them, you get the blossom in spring, you get the foliage in summer, you get the fruit in autumn, you get something for you because a garden needs to work for you as much as it does for wildlife. And brilliantly, fruit trees have been bred to be suitable for small gardens, for large gardens. You just need to choose one on what's called the right root stock. And you can get tiny ones for a patio garden, medium sized ones for a medium garden or big orchard sized ones for a big garden. Yeah, amazing. So you kind of touched upon my next question uh, for a patio. What if someone doesn't have a garden? They're living in the middle of a city, they're on a high rise, but they've got a balcony. How can they attract birds to that side? I'm sure we're going to get onto bird feeding, which is, it's not the, it's not the cheating method. I certainly don't mean that, but it's, it's almost like a, a quick, easy win 
method. And, and it's a great thing to do, but I always talk about it as supplementary to the food that wildlife must get in the rest of their lives. It really is a top-up to everything else. So I, I like to cover with, with folk how creating a habitat is a really important thing even if you're up on a balcony. That's the thing that will draw in the insects and produce the seeds and provide the cover, all of those other aspects. And I often talk about it in terms of home needs. What needs does a creature have in order for that place to be home? And a bit of supplementary food is really useful, but it's like, if you did just did that, it's like having a kitchen without having a bedroom and without having a lounge. You've got to have all the things there to cover things. And plants are just the brilliant starting point. On a high-rise balcony, there's still a chance to put in pots, check check the weight bearing of your balcony first. Um, but most balconies are built that they can adequately take us and bikes and uh, Lord knows what. So it can take a few plant pots. Choose your plants carefully and you'll start to create a habitat that will draw wildlife in. I always say to folk who, who are in that kind of balcony or roof garden situation, that it's going to take longer in order for wildlife to find it and less wildlife will find it than if you've got a garden like mine. That, that's kind of inevitable. But it doesn't matter because you just celebrate every win that you get knowing that you, you created the opportunity for that win to happen. What cool scientific fact about a bird can you give me? Oh, wow. What a cool scientific fact. Oh, gee, where where to start with this? I'm going to go for a, another bird that came into my garden last year, which is the nightjar. Unbelievable. I'm in the middle of suburbia. I opened the curtains one morning. The blue tits and grey tits were going crazy in a spruce tree down, down my garden. And I thought, that's not normal. With the binoculars, I could see this little bit of of russety tails sticking out from a bird that was clearly sat along a branch lengthways. And I knew instantly I'd got a nightjar, which I could never have predicted. So the fact I'm going to tell you is that because nightjars have what are called rictal bristles around their beak, which are thought to be helpful in catching insects when they're trawling the night skies for insects, nightjars have a special comb on their foot for cleaning their rictal bristles. Isn't that cool? That's just amazing. That is super, super cool. That just shows evolution at probably one of its finest moments. And it's had many, hasn't it? It's amazing. Adrian, I honestly want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you can come back again. I'd love to. Now, when I was younger, my mother used to try and get me to go out as often as I can. And there was one rule when I was outdoors, and that's to be back before the lights on the streets come on. Now, my parents being so flexible about leaving me and my brother outdoors and letting us have free roam of the place as such, it built up my love for the outdoors and birds especially. I was fond of all the birds that I had in Sudan, but I wanted to learn about the birds here in the UK. And as soon as I told my mother that, she managed to find out about the RSPB reserve that's near us. And she used to take me in with a very 
cheap pair of binoculars that I still have to this day with me. And she would take in a book for her to read while I sit in the bird hides and just look at the birds and try and figure out what I'm looking at and look at all the pictures and the leaflets that are on the walls describing the different birds. And very often I got chatting to the people around me, the birders, and asked them a whole load of questions. And that's really where my love of birds began. As I got older and more responsible, my mum used to drop me off at the RSPB reserves and go about her daily business and go and see what she needs to do, go into town centre and then come back at the end of the day, collect me and kind of ask me, how was your day? And I'd be rattling off a whole load of birds that I saw and new information that I picked up and she can really see the joy in me from talking about birds. I wanted to ask, how do you get people interested into paying attention to the birds that live around them in this city? Well, I think people are inherently interested. A lot of people stop and ask what I'm looking at. I mean, I prefer to be, I like, I like being out birding with groups because when there's a group of people staring up at a tree with binoculars, it gets people curious. And sometimes when you're in a really urban setting, like there was this bird called a Couch's Kingbird a few years ago in the West Village of Manhattan. And it was the first record for New York State. And I think the second or third record east of uh, the Mississippi River, east of the Great Plains. It's a bird of the American Southwest and uh, Mexico and, and the tropics. And a friend of mine spotted it and knew it was something unusual, but wasn't sure what it was. He thought it might even be something common, like a mockingbird that had sat in some yellow paint because this bird has a bright yellow belly. And then I he sent me a photo he got of it. And he'd been seeing it for weeks. It's incredibly rare. The first, you know, New York State record. And he'd been seeing it for weeks and, and nobody else knew about it. And then he finally got a photograph sent to me and I, I you know, jumped out of my chair. And in any case, many, many people came to see it. I mean, not just from New York, but from all over the the Northeast. So you'd have dozens of people, maybe even hundreds of times out on the sidewalk. And it was in a very urban area. We we were looking up, it was often perched on the fire escapes of buildings. And so passersby tended to think that we were looking, that we were like paparazzi with the big cameras looking at a celebrity. And so they would stop me like, who's up there? Like, you know, is it Justin Bieber or something? Or, and sometimes they seem a little disappointed to find out it was this small bird. Um, but also people were, I think, really interested. And, you know, I think anyone, anyone can be excited or moved or inspired, particularly if they see something like a raptor, you know, a, a, a red-tailed hawk or a peregrine falcon. They're, they're a bit more, certainly an owl. If it's something like a hawk that's flown down and perched with a, a rat on top of a taxi cab, which is a thing that happens in New York City, that stops any passerby, you know. And I think that's wonderful. Like, it really will get people engaged and, and make them realize like, oh, this is here. Like this is something you would see on, on that a wildlife filmmaker might make a film about on the National Geographic channel or something. It breaks through, I think, people's perception of reality because they tend to go about their daily life not realizing there's much in the way of wildlife in the city or thinking it is just rats and pigeons. So if someone mm-hmm. I was leading a, a, a boat trip for a festival called City of Water Day down the Hudson River and a, a, a humpback whale came up next to the boat. And um, that was a very special moment. And so you have some moment like that with these charismatic megafauna. And I think it really can permanently alter the way people perceive 
their reality. And that's an exciting shift for me to, to facilitate or just witness. So if I had any tips for birding in a city, it will be go to your local ponds, uh, your local parks. A little bit of greenery is always good. And these ponds, people tend to feed the birds, the ducks, the herring gulls. And if you're anywhere down south near London, for example, you'll get ring-necked parakeets. You might even get them in your garden. So I would, one of my tips would be to focus on birding near a park. I just want to give a big thank you to all my guests. I think it's been an absolute blast, so thank you to all of them. If you want to find out more about Get Birding, we are on social media at Get Birding Pod. Please join us there, like, follow, subscribe, and ask us any questions that you guys have in mind. Um, If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, anything along those lines, please drop us a line. And hopefully we'll see you on the next episode of Get Burning. One of the joys of birding is that you can do it anywhere. Whether you're by the beach, in the middle of the town, in the countryside. And here's me sitting in front of my house doing a bit of birding. And there's a dog who's going bananas over there with its owner. But I can still see Curlew that's flying across the bay. The otter that's completely ignoring both of us, me and the dog. And you can still do a little bit of birding. And you can hear the birds. There's nothing like that. If you take the time to just sit and stop and listen, the world around you is amazing. Get Birding is sponsored by Birding Optic Specialist Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance, insuring conservation groups across the UK. Get Birding is a peanut and crumb production.